The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. My name is Paige, and today I'm very excited to introduce Kurt Hohan. Do you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> Thanks, Paige. Um, hi, guys. Uh, I'm excited about being on the Deviation Podcast. My business partner and uh, good buddy and former teammate Mike Glover uh, was on the Deviation Podcast. And Paige was kind enough to ask me to be on the podcast. So first, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, two, yeah, I'm Kurt, and I'm the vice president of Fieldcraft Survival. Uh, the owner is my business partner, Mike Glover. Uh, we were teammates in Special Forces together and have since started what we call a modern survival company. Uh, probably some other important things about introducing myself. I'm a father, husband, um, medically retired Green Beret, um, spent, you know, over 20 years at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, both as on active duty, um, and, and as a contractor for special operations command based out of McDill air force base in Florida. Um, yeah, so that's, that's me. And, and, uh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you expanded on that introduction because yeah. there were just a couple things you had left out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so would you would you start from the beginning? Sure. I mean, how is it that you've become who you are today? Um, yeah. So that's obviously uh, there'll be a detailed answer to that question. Yeah, it's no, kind of a giant yeah, question. Right? <laughs> um, no. So I'll, yeah, from the beginning. So I was born in Northridge, California. We we're talking about that a little bit. So uh, it's cool we have that in common that we're both from the valley in Cali. Oh. Uh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's if if that's right to admit or not. No. I don't know. Uh, I try to just say I'm from just outside of LA because as soon as you say the valley, I don't know about you, but people start looking at me a little. Oh funny. yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, born in Northridge, California. Uh, my mom and dad were both in Southern California at the time. Uh, my dad is originally from uh, the Pittsburgh area in Pennsylvania, so he's from the East Coast. My mom's family settled in California. Both both families are from Irish and German descent. They're immigrants. Um, back in the day. And so I was born in Northridge. Uh, they met and know, like, th- I, this is the story, which I think is actually hilarious. So my dad was uh, on the LAPD for 27 years. And supposedly my mom was working at a donut shop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a silly story. But uh, and so my dad had stopped in, they met, my mom was going to college in Southern California. And that's how they met. Um, so anyways, born in Northridge, and then I was raised in Southern and Central California. So my parents actually, um, their marriage didn't work out. So they were uh, they got divorced when I was like five. And my mom got custody of me, and I moved to the Central California area in the San Joaquin Valley, which is where my mom's family was from. Um, you know, my dad was always involved um, throughout my childhood, which is a good thing. Um, I'm very grateful for that and was a huge influence on me. He was an infantry officer in Vietnam in the first CAV, um, served a tour in Vietnam and then, uh, as a, as a second and first Lieutenant and then promoted to captain, did a tour in Europe. And then at that time going into the early seventies, uh, they basically, 
the rift in the army came. So that so there was a massive buildup during Vietnam with both draftees and guys that volunteered. And when Vietnam was over, you know, the army, uh, it, it shrinks and grows based off of need. And so at that time, um, they were shrinking and he actually knew that it was going to, there was, you know, the day was going to come where they're going to ask him to resign his commission. And so he, uh, opted to do that prior to being asked to doing it. So, and the reason why, you know, some of you listening might be like, well, why did that happen? So the army retained the majority of their West Point graduates. So if you don't know, West Point is one of the academies. It's a direct feeder into the United States Army for commissioned officers. So my dad was an OCS graduate, which is officer candidate school. So he enlisted when he was 17, believe it or not. He actually threatened my grandmother to run away if she wouldn't sign the paperwork for him to allow him to enlist to go to Vietnam. So he's a volunteer. He wasn't a draftee, um, which, you know, hey, uh, I have great respect for both uh, both of those uh, two demographics of, of men that you know and women that chose to serve, um, uh, and then some of them were drafted, and you know they served their country honorably, which is a which is a big deal to me. Uh, but my dad volunteered; he was young, and he was identified by a drill sergeant in basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, as having a lot of leadership potential. Um, and so basically they're like, we don't typically do this, but we're going to make a recommendation to send you to, so he graduated basic training. They sent him to officer candidate school after, um, where he earned his commission, went to airborne school, went to ranger school, and then he deployed to Vietnam as an infantry platoon leader. So, um, and then my grandfather was a world war II vet. So it runs in our family. I'll get to that though. Um, so yeah, from California, born and raised there. I graduated high school in Southern California. Uh, I went to Bishop Alamany High School. Sports was huge my entire life. Uh, I played football, baseball, soccer, wrestled. Uh, football was my probably my love as far as you know sports went, um, and that's what I ended up going with ultimately. Before you know, before I graduated, and then um, graduated high school. Did not uh, expect to join the army, believe it or not. Actually, when I was a junior, my dad's like, "You need to join the army because you're all jacked up. You know, <laughs> you need some discipline and and other things, right? That the military helps provide direction, motivation, a lot of different things, discipline. And so, uh, through the course of um, basically getting or graduating from high school, I worked at UPS for like five or six months, and I loaded trailers. And I'll never forget, um, it was a hot summer day. Um, I kind of worked like afternoon into the evening shift. So they weren't like full eight hour shifts. You worked like quarter shifts of like four hours or six hours. And then you could get overtime if you wanted to make extra money. It was a good job. UPS was a good job because it had benefits. You were part of a union, you know, uh, which, you know, now like I have my own opinions about some of those things. But at the time, as a young dude, like 18 years old, graduating high school, getting a good job, it paid well. Uh, my boss was competent. You know, the guys I worked around were squared away. So it was a good environment to be in, but I was still loading, you know, trailers. And I worked in the bigger trailers that basically went from the West Coast uh, of the United States to the East Coast. So these were like big package trailers that came out of the hub um, off of Foothill Boulevard in uh, the northern part of the San Fernando Valley. So that's the UPS um, hub that I worked out of. And so anyways, I'll never forget it. 
it was a hot summer day. I'm, I'm slinging packages. You know, they had to be packed a certain way. It was like playing Tetris inside oh of <laughs> these trailers because space is money, mm-hmm. you know. And so the expectation is, is that these trailers are parked or excuse me, they're packed a certain way for maximum uh, use for packages uh, to be able to fit in the trailer. So I'll never forget it. I'm loading this trailer. I'm sweating my butt off because it's summertime in the valley and I'm in this trailer and I'm like, is this really where I want to be? Like, is this, is this all I have to offer? And it was nothing against the other guys that work there. We've all got to make life choices. And so that one for me came a little bit early. And so I started entertaining the idea of joining the military. And, um, you know, again, it ran in my family. I was always, um, very attracted to teamwork and being involved in a team and what it took to be part of the team, the dynamic of working around other people and like understanding what motivated them and like all these interesting things that I still find are hugely necessary today, um, helping run a business. And so I decided to, I went and talked to a recruiter with my dad and my dad's like, he wants to be an airborne ranger. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I don't even know what the hell that is. (laughs) Um, And I'll never forget because the recruiter that I had, he was a sergeant first class. I don't remember his name, but he's a, you know, big black dude and super good guy. And he was like, he was in communications, like his MOS was a communications guy in the army. And he said, well, what do you want to do, Kurt? And I was like, I want to be a door gunner on a helicopter. That was like the first thing that came to mind. I think it was like a flashback from like Full Metal Jacket or um, something like that, where, you know, the the Huey door gunners, because I was was a huge um, kind of studier of the history of Vietnam because my dad was a Vietnam vet and it was always really interesting to me. So in high school, I used to read nothing but, you know, paperback books about Vietnam, about LERPs, about the Rangers, the long range patrol guys, Mac V SOG, like those, I looked at those guys and they were definitely heroes growing up, especially as I, you know, as I became a teenager, I really looked up to those guys and the, the grit and determination and their bravery and all these things, right. That I think that you're looking for as a young man, um, as you develop, Mike and I have actually talked about it on the book, uh, tribe and Sebastian younger describes this phase that I think both young men and women, uh, especially young men, because, you know, he, he actually gets into the history of like genetics, basically of men and how they're, uh, they need to prove themselves to the community. And so, and I have a lot of, you know, other theories, not necessarily theories, but like the reason why guys join gangs and do all these you know, counterproductive things and what they're really looking for is an outlet to prove themselves to the pack, essentially. And so anyways, long story short, Vietnam, all that stuff, huge influence. So the military has always been something that was there. But my dad was like, hey, make your own choice. Like he wanted me to join, but make your own choice. And then I circled back around to it. So um, ended up joining the army, Um, had a long, productive career, Um, started off at Fort Benning, Georgia. I was in the infantry. Uh, Mike was 11 Hotel. I was too, which is an anti-armor infantryman. I went to airborne school, um, went to an infantry unit at Fort Bragg, where I started off um, and spent several years doing that job. And then I transitioned to 18th Airborne Corps Long Range Surveillance Company, which was called F Company 51st. And they actually their lineage goes back to Vietnam, which was cool for me. Um, but they were the LERP Rangers of old. And so we were the eyes and ears for the 18th Airborne Corps commander, who was, uh, I believe it was a two or three star command. 
and we were set up in small six-man teams, and we were responsible for conducting reconnaissance and providing information to the whole 18th Airborne Corps. Yeah, so it was a, it was a, um, a pretty cool job. A lot of really motivated guys, um, just a good community of guys to be in. And so f- uh, my first combat deployment was with that unit to Iraq during the invasion of Iraq. And I spent 11 months there doing that job. So I was all over the Iranian border, the Syrian border. Um, and I worked a lot with the Peshmerga up north. It was my first opportunity to work with those guys. And so it was a action-packed deployment. Um, you know, what did it, Like, what did an average day look like? Or was there not really an average day? Uh, I don't know if there's an average day in combat. Some, I mean, I've, I've heard other guys use uh, kind of descriptions of you know, boredom surrounded by moments of sheer terror, um, based off of like a life threatening situation or a firefight or something like that. But, uh, there was not really a typical day. So the first, uh, month I was in country, we started off in Kuwait, then everybody crossed the berm. Mm -hmm. And then basically I I hadn't taken a shower for a month. Um, so we got to, yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. So got to Baghdad, um, and at that time, the rest of my unit had already crossed the berm. I showed up like two weeks late or three weeks late, um, because I had just come over. And so I caught up with the rest of the guys in Baghdad. And then we pushed North, uh, into Mosul, which everybody's heard that a million times. Cause it was the ISIS caliphate, you know, the capital. And so I've been all over that country, you know, I, so I, I spent a decent amount of time up in Mosul and, um, did a bunch of fighting up there and all kinds of stuff. So, um, long productive deployment, uh, learned a lot about myself, the guys that were around me. And the one thing that happened during that, uh, deployment is we were attached to special operations, army special operations specifically, um, to do a couple missions. And so I was exposed to that and I was like, this is it. That's what I want to do. I want to be one of those guys, like their bosses, like they're super proficient at their jobs, super professional, but given a ton of lead way to execute missions. And, and that was a huge impact on me. And so I was like, when I get back, I'm going to special forces selection. Question backing up a little bit. You had said something along the lines of you learned a lot about yourself on that deployment. Right. Is there anything in particular that really, really stands out Um, in addition to you deciding that you wanted to go on this new trajectory? Yeah. So this is a chance for me to plug our podcast. No. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm the co-host on the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast as well. Um, But I actually talked about this experience on the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. So um, there was a, uh, a moment in that deployment where we were required to leave Mosul and head to a place called Tikrit, which was where Saddam, that was his hometown. So it was in the Sunni triangle. Um, and, uh, at that time it was a dangerous, that highway was relatively dangerous traveling down there because of IEDs and all this other stuff. And it was still early initially in the, uh, the bad guys capability to build bombs that, um, you know, that were effective enough to, to kill American soldiers. So there's actually two kind of defining moments. Um, one of them was a vehicle accident that we lost four guys in that I was present for. Um, and that was a difficult thing to be a part, a part of, um, you know, you're in a combat zone and you expect 
to lose guys in combat. Um, I didn't expect to lose guys from basically a monsoon that came through. Um, and I was in a vehicle that was behind an LMTV, which is a troop support vehicle. And we had a bad storm come through. So imagine we're in a convoy of, you know, 10 vehicles. We're headed south towards Tikrit. And the, um, the storm came through and we had to stop because there was no visibility. So in those parts of the world, when a bad rain slash mud sandstorm comes through, the visibility is like nothing. You can't even see your hand, you know, a couple feet in front of you. So we pulled over and stopped and we let the storm pass, which, you know, it did. And we got back on the road and continued to head south. And there was a big bomb crater in the road and the lead vehicle didn't see it, hit his brakes and it caused a chain reaction along the convoy because we were moving at high speeds because we didn't want to get blown up by an IED. And the road was wet and it caused the LMTV that was in front of me to lock his brakes and he started to slide out of control. The back of that vehicle was full of guys. And so the ass into the vehicle, um, basically slid 180 and um it hit the the tires got traction once it hit dirt and by that that point the vehicle was completely out of control it flipped probably three times and so this is all the while i'm watching bodies and everything and equipment fly out of the back of this vehicle and um when it was all said and done it was you know a huge mass casualty situation um, I, I'm helping dig two guys out that got killed underneath the vehicle. We actually used um, sides of the LMTV uh, to move their bodies to a casualty collection point, you know, because when stuff like that happens, I mean, you, you know, I was young, I was in my 20s, you know, and um, you do what you're trained to do, which is try to help guys. And then, you know, realizing that some guys are already dead, you're moving them to a casualty collection point. And then basically, you know, trying to call for a medevac. And, and so the screwed up part about that is one of the guys that passed later on, um, we couldn't get medevacs there fast enough because of the storm. So they wouldn't fly. So we actually sat <clears throat> on the on the wreck itself for probably 24 hours. Um, eventually, we're able to get some helicopters in to evacuate both the guys that were killed and then the one guy that was still trying to hang on, and then we found found out later on that he passed at one of the Ford surgical stations, or um, yeah, one of the FSTs or the caches is what they're called. So, anyways, that was obviously a pretty defining moment. Like um, up to that point, I had been in some like minor firefights, and you know we had duked it out with some bad guys, and um, nothing. You know, it wasn't anything hugely impactful to me. It was like holy shit, that was a gunfight. Um, and it, you know, never felt more alive, you know, but that one was like, you know, seeing Americans get killed and it wasn't, you know, it was a vehicle accident. So we all felt, you know, it felt weird because it wasn't like, it was almost like you could stomach the fact that a, a guy was killed in combat, but a vehicle accident in a combat zone, which, you know, you go back and look at statistics of guys, um, and gals that have been killed in combat zones. And some of them are accidents, obviously, you know, because of the terrain or the geographic location exposure, whatever aircraft crashes, whatever. Um, so the second one was, um, I was involved in a direct hit from an IED in Mosul, um, where I was wounded and it was a big firefight and it was a, basically an IED initiated ambush. 
um, that wounded me, another guy in the vehicle. We lived, obviously, um, and then fought our way out, killed a couple bad guys. And I mean, it was a big... Hold on. After you got blown up, you then fought your way out. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I wanted to skim back. I wanted to stay alive. So, uh, yeah. Um, So those were two early on in my career. Um during that first deployment were pretty defining moments. One, because the IED strike, uh, the IED strike, I never felt so vulnerable in my life. Like, you know, and I'm not afraid to say it. I was driving the vehicle and I screamed at the top of my lungs after, I mean, I knew it was happening, um, because two IEDs went off, um, and missed my vehicle. And then, uh, one of them was a direct hit. So it was pretty scary. Um, but you know, again, in those situations, you know, you rely on what you did in training. And so the, you know, I was like, holy shit, like that just happened. I was super dazed, fell out of the vehicle. The vehicle caught on fire. I mean, it was this big ordeal and, um, you know, we're returning fire. My, my rifle, um, ended up catching on fire in the vehicle. I'm fighting with a pistol in the middle of the street, um, and it was pretty intense. It was definitely one of the most intense engagements I'd been in um, up to that point in my career. And then, you know, there would be other ones after that because of me um, progressing in my military career and then being in Army Special Operations and doing that job. So, um, but the two early ones were definitely those. So it was seeing, um, you know, an American get killed in a combat zone and then it was uh, being hit directly by an IED. So how did you, how did you, one, just stay solid and focus going through that and not let the chaos that was surrounding you and, well, you just got blown up, so it'll still partially, like, in you. Right. Distract you, for lack of better phrasing. Um, it, the human, your human nature to survive is an, is an absolute amazing thing when it's put to the test. I, you know, you, you, you'll hear different experiences from different people based off of how they react. And, um, you know, you talk about fight and the fight and flight, all that kind of stuff. Mine was to fight. So, um, I'm happy to say that (laughs) it wasn't flight. Um, I just, I knew that if we didn't do something that we were going to die and I didn't want to die there. Um, and so I, did what I was trained to do, which was find the bad guy that was shooting at me once I kind of got my wits about me after getting blown up um, and, you know, and do what I was trained to do, which was uh, to kill bad guys. And so um, thankfully, I had great guys that I worked with. There are other vehicles in that convoy. They I was blown up and in the kill zone. They got out of the kill zone. They drove back in. They dismounted their vehicles. They walked in next to the vehicles and we're returning fire. And, um, it was, I mean, you know, those are things that I remember where you're like, your brothers are willing to do anything to bring you back. And, um, so that was a huge impact on me early on in my career. And then, you know, like I said, um, as my career progressed, I came back from that deployment and I enjoyed being in that unit and the guys that I worked around, but ultimately I was hungry to go and do more. And so, Um, maybe a month after I got back, I was in special forces assessment and selection. I didn't train up for it. I didn't, I was in really good shape. You know, I was in my twenties and my team leader in long range surveillance who would later go to SF as well, uh, was like a beast. And so this guy, we were physically constantly training and doing physical training. And, 
so I was more than ready um, when I got back, even though even even though I just finished an 11 month deployment. So, um, yeah, I came back from that. I went to SF selection um, and fortunately I got selected uh, to be an 18 Bravo, which is a special forces weapons sergeant. And I would end up getting us. I would finish the Q course. Uh, my language was Arabic. And um, so I spent almost probably. I think it's roughly it's almost two years when it's all said and done um uh so got back in let's see oh four and then reported to third special forces group in january of 2006 when i finished um and then i would serve the remainder of my career in third special forces group so um yeah the majority of my time was actually in special operations so was it what you thought it would be? I mean, like going going into the training because I've I've read about it, I've heard about it. It's, right, it's intense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was good. Um, it was everything I I wanted it to be. I want I didn't want it to be easy because I wanted to know that. Um, and I kind of had a feeling just based off of what I was experiencing because I, you know, for example, in selection, you watch guys drop like flies. I mean, you you know, every evening you went into to your bunk area and, you know, the time for guys to quit was in the middle of the night because then they could do it with nobody seeing them, you know, because it's for them. I don't know if it was shameful or whatever. Thought it never crossed my mind because I was like, hey, I'm here to make it. <laughs> and so I did. And um, I think it's, uh, you know, people ask me, I engage a lot with people on social media, especially young men that are like, hey, I want to do what you did. And they're always like, can you give me any tips? And I'm like, yeah, man, like make the decision to either do it or not. You know, I mean, I think a lot of things in life come down to that. Um, I think it was a little bit clearer in the military for me. Like, you know, I'm still learning as a civilian how to process some of that information and execute certain things because it's a different environment. But, um, you know, in the military, it was easy for me. I was like, I'm going to go and be and do this. And then I would go and do it. So, um, and again, in you know, in selection, I saw guys dropping. So that gave me the, um, you know, the gut feeling that like I was in the right place. Like I wanted to be with elite guys doing very important jobs for the country. And, um, you know, with, without a lot of oversight, because I knew that I was bright enough to, to think of solutions to get jobs done in difficult places. So if that makes sense. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. This is kind of backtracking a little bit, but, um, your dad was in Vietnam mm-hmm. and I've heard a lot of stories about how, how difficult it was coming back from that. And some of the, you know, the PTSD and sure. things like that, did that, did that scare you at all? I mean, did you see that in your dad and did it make you feel any particular way about, do I want to join? Um, I'll, you know, honestly, uh, it's a great question, by the way. It's like exposure, right, to uh, um, family members that have served. No, but uh, but with my dad, um, he lived a life of service. So when he got out of the Army, he, w- he went straight to uh, Los Angeles to join the LAPD. He was there for 27 years. So for me... Um, what I saw was this guy who had built a life based off of discipline and, um, and was extremely successful because he was disciplined. So, um, as far as post-traumatic stress disorder, I'm from an Irish Catholic family. Um, so my dad drank whiskey, you know what I mean? He drank, um, I, he didn't, I didn't really see my dad get drunk a lot, but he drank. And so I don't know if that was a way that he dealt with stress. 
Um, it could have been, um, but I, but I didn't notice anything kind of, you know, off about it. Um, but he later on, he would have dreams and I knew about that. Like he was back in Vietnam. So I would hear him yelling at night and it was like, he was talking to his platoon, like they were fighting and which I know are all common, you know, after the fact, but my, um, especially now, but even back then, like, I didn't think anything about that because I'm like, well, the guy was exposed to combat. Like not everybody sees that. And, and now being exposed to it myself and understanding what happens and everybody is different and their exposures prior to that and after, um, and how that affects them after are different. And so, you know, for me, um, you know, there are definitely elements there where I would say that I have, you know, mild post-traumatic stress disorder. I've been diagnosed by the VA. I'm not ashamed to say that because the way I look at it is I kind of, I don't wear it as a badge of honor, but I chose to go and do something that not everybody chooses to go do. And the bottom line is, is that there is a price to pay for choosing what I, what I went to go do. And some of that um, is in the form of having some post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I'm a realist about um, the effects of, of what that does to you. And so I try to maintain a real healthy outlook on it. Um, you know, have I ever had survivor's guilt? Yeah, you do a little bit. You know, you wonder why you made it and other guys didn't. Other guys that I knew that were 10 times the soldier I was. Um, and so all of that's natural. So I try to... I try to look at that and just say, hey, you're going to feel these ways um, because that's just part of what you did. And that's just the way it goes. So, you know, I, I choose to not um, overly focus on some of those because I don't want to let them be a negative dictator of my life. Um, and that's just the way that I process it. Like I'm not, you know, judging other guys. There's other guys that have had much more difficult time with it than I have. There's other guys that have been exposed to more combat than I have. There's other guys that have been through, you know, more terrible situations throughout their military career. So I would never judge a guy for obviously having difficulty. Of course. Yeah. So like for me, it's about like being responsible about it. So if you do have something going on, like it's okay, like go and address it with somebody, a professional that can help you work through that. And some of it may be, you know, reconnecting with guys you serve with all the way up to being, you know, treated by a physician or whatever it's supposed to look like, or going to, you know, uh, a group to help you, or there's a solution, right? Because I feel like one of the huge healers of PTSD is community after the military. And that's what we're all searching for anyways, is where to fit in after we did this job for a long time. Um, and Mike and I talk about it a lot too, is that transitional process. I think a lot of it is not post-traumatic stress disorder. I think it's a transitional issue where guys have done, you know, these, um, things that not everyone else will identify with. And, you know, my expectation is that the public doesn't, I went and did that. I chose to do it. I don't, I'm not an entitlement guy. I don't expect you to kiss my behind because I went and did it, but I think, the realistic part of that is you need to understand that that affects people. And so there should be a process of reintegration um, that we are sensitive about and that we include our veterans because we understand that, you know, they they did something for the community and the community needs to bring them back in. So that's my <laughs> I think I think that's honestly really smart because, I mean, a big thing you touched on was 
realizing there's an issue and knowing that that's okay and that's normal and that's expected instead of thinking, oh, hey, I'm going to come back from this deployment where I was fighting every day and any sort of sound could mean like somebody was about to die to going back to a civilian lifestyle and thinking that you're just going to ease back in. I mean, it's not to judge anybody for it, but it's it's totally understandable that you'd think you'd be okay doing that and also like it doesn't make a lot of sense at the sure. same time. So I think that's that's really solid advice. Yeah, <laughs> I I think the biggest thing is is um, is being you know Mike and I have a voice in in Philcraft and with the podcast and with uh, with our social media stuff and everything else we do and so that's a that's one that's really important to both of us is um, supporting our fellow veterans as far as the transitional issues that they face and. You know, we've picked different um, nonprofits to support some of those that help. One of one of the big ones is uh, it's called Warrior Heart Facility. It's actually founded um, by a personal friend of both Mike and I. He was a Delta Force operator, uh, 14 combat deployments. The guy's an absolute superstar. His name's Tom Spooner. He had a calling to set something up on the backside for guys that had substance abuse issues and post-traumatic stress disorder. Basically, um, you know, through a lot of help with other people, got a ranch in Texas, like a 150-acre facility, and they now treat um, veterans and first responders for substance abuse and post-traumatic stress disorder. Obviously, those are two separate things. You have to address one to get at the root of, you know, the other one. So those are guys like I. Those are like success stories. You know, guys that dealt with something on their own, and instead of you know finding an easy way out, whatever that looks like. Um, in my personal opinion, um, I won't touch on that too much, but these guys made the, they took the, the hard choice, which was doing something about it for other veterans. And, um, so good example of, uh, of how to turn things around and kind of make your own path and make a, make an impact. And so we're hugely supportive of those guys. We've talked about them before, Um, And I will always be an advocate for combat veterans and veterans in general, because I know what that's like um, to come out on the other side. And we're, you know, for the most part, society is pretty good, right? You were hitting on some stuff with Vietnam and transitional issues back then. Imagine fighting in the jungle for your country, you know, and coming home. and, And because of the opinion, you know, with people back home, they treated you poorly. And it's like, you know, that we've definitely grown from that time to where we're at now, which I'm, I'm pretty proud of that as a country. Um, it show, I think it shows a lot of maturity and understanding that, you know, even if you don't agree with a conflict, the guys that go and, um, that, that execute foreign policy for the government, like it's not us that made that decision. It's the politician that you voted into office and those people vote and have a ton of control over those issues. So oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe this is a transitional piece where we talk about politics. No, <laughs> no, but I mean, honestly, like it's not the soldier, the sailor, the airman, the Marine. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just doing what they're told. Essentially, they're going and following orders of those that were appointed above them, which, you know, up into includes the the government. So, um, yeah, if you want to make a difference, vote. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, I'm transitioning to something completely different. <laughs> no, but. no, no, but, but you're absolutely right. I mean... So many of the people I've had the privilege to speak to have joined the armed forces because they want to make a difference. Sure. Um, it was Matt Lane that I spoke to. I don't, 
might have been him. He said <laughs> he said something along the lines of like um, I didn't feel like I could do enough not actually being on the ground fighting. It just felt like everything was moving so slowly. And I didn't like the way the world was working and this is this is something I can physically go and do and be a part of and yeah. actually move something. Yeah. And so I think that was a part of it for so there was a part of it. I came in in the 90s. So Clinton was, you know, President Bill Clinton was the commander in chief. We weren't at war. So I came in pre 9-11 and I experienced 9-11 in the military. I was a young non-commissioned officer. I was an E-5 in the infantry. And I, you know, I happened to be um, in the chow hall at like the basic leadership course when I was a young non-commissioned officer, it was called the primary leadership development course. I think it's called the warriors course now or something like that. The army's good at making things up as they go. Um, new names for things, right? <laughs> but it's the same old stuff. Uh, so I was in that course and I'll never forget it. Um, it was uh, just short of, I think, 9 a.m., which I think the Twin Towers were attacked around that time um, from what I remember. Um, it may have been 8 a.m., but I was finishing a cup of coffee and I looked on the TV screen and it was breaking news. I'm sitting in the chow hall at Fort Bragg and, you know, the planes crash into the towers. And we, I was sitting there with another group of young non-commissioned officers and we were like, is this real? Like what? Like we were blown away. Um, and we were like, holy shit. Like we just got like, then it started coming to fruition or whatever. The information started coming out that we were attacked. And so, um, it was a, a, a response that you would expect from a bunch of young, hungry military, you know, guys and gals. And it was like, we just got attacked. Let's go kick these dudes asses. Whoever did this, like we need to, you know, we need to go do something about it. So that was kind of the resounding feeling. Um, and we all knew little did we know that we would be involved in this conflict for, you know, almost two decades. So uh, we were all hungry, you know, to go get after it and not realizing that, you know, almost 20 years later, we would still be involved in a conflict where fighting, you know, an ideology that um, ultimately wants to destroy the West. So interesting stuff. I geek out on <laughs> all this stuff. It's interesting to me. So then how how long after that did you did you officially become a Green Beret? Um, let's see. So that would have been roughly, oh geez, that would have been in 2000 ish. I, well, 2001 is when that happened. And then I report. So five years after that, uh, and after my first combat deployment, I reported to third special forces group. So I got there in 2006 and then let's see, it's 18 now. So I retired in 16. So I was in third group for over a decade. Man. Yeah. So. So did nine eleven just help like surge you forward in regards to like this is this is a huge part of why I'm here, wanting to make a difference, and like this is what I'm fighting for. Yeah, I mean, um, I, it definitely gave uh, direction, <laughs> you know, because I uh, I would I joined the infantry, you know, and then I, I knew that my grandfather and my father were combat veterans. And it's almost like that thing where at that time I was in a peacetime army. Like the only thing they cared about was, you know, pressed uniforms and shine boots. And even in the airborne infantry, believe it or not. Um, I mean, we definitely did more than I think some of the rest of the army. 
but it was still kind of a garrison military and, and it was just different. Like we knew after that it was going to change. And so individually as an, as a young non-commissioned officer, I wanted to go to combat to see what it, I mean, I wanted to go, that's really the end state of being in the military is going and doing your job in combat. Um, at least, especially uh, being an infantryman and then later on a green beret, which I would get my chance over and over again, you know, to do that. Um, but that's ultimately what you signed up for. Like, and that is a, even when I have young men now and they talk to me about joining the military, I'm real serious about how I address those questions because, um, I didn't understand the full totality of what that meant until I went to combat and experienced all those things. And so I try to be a good steward an educator of what that really means. And so I'm always really upfront with guys. I'm like, are you sure this is what you want to do? Understand this. You're never going to be the same. You're going to get exposed to things that are going to change you. And you need to understand that upfront, that it's not a game. Like you're, you're going to do, uh, the nation's business and it's dangerous. And there's a chance that you might get killed. There's a chance that you're going to see people get killed. There's a chance that you're going to kill and all these different things that um, when you're young, I think you look at guys like Mike and I and you're like, I want to be a Green Beret because those guys are total badasses and all this. And I'm always I always try to give a realistic picture of what that looks like, because I I wasn't really talked to about that before I joined the military. It just was kind of a gung ho thing I thought was a and, and I was looking for like the team atmosphere and some of the things that we talked about that were influ- influential to me when I was a kid. And I found all those in the military, but, um, but I just want people to know what they're getting into before they make that decision. Cause I think it's important to understand. What so. do you think is the most vital aspect? I mean, you mentioned you're not going to be the same. You're going to experience all, all of these things that's going to amount to you not being the same. And is there, if you could, this is such a loaded <laughs> question. <laughs> um, if you could like sum it up in a statement, how would you? Oh boy. Yeah. Um, I told you really loaded. Yeah. Uh, wow. Summarize it in a statement. Jeez. Uh, we might have to come back to that in we a minute because I'm, I'm thinking about it and I want to say, I don't regret, um, serving in the military at all. It, there's no doubt it made me the person that I am today, the man that I am today. Um, and I learned a ton about myself and about what I was willing to do and what I wasn't willing to do and about my own discipline, my own motivation, you know, things and how I process information and how I interact with others and, you know, life and death and like all these really serious things that, um, some people, unfortunately, in my mind, don't ever get to experience, you know, because, and they just have, you know, Mike and I, again, have talked a lot about this and it, it, the perspective that it gave me on life and the appreciation, one, of this country, um, two, of our veterans, um, especially the guys that I serve with. I love them to death and I always will. Um, but it gave me a perspective about life in general that I think uh, everybody should have because it just makes you so appreciative every day that you get up. It's like, you're not getting shot at. You're not getting blown up. Like life's not that bad. Like if something's (laughs) difficult, like I promise you can get through it. You know, a lot of it is mindset and your, your willpower and, um, and what you devote yourself to and, and, and a lot of those things. And I've learned about those things through hardship in the military. 
um, especially in combat. And, and then watching uh, the, the guys that I think are 10 times better than I was around me and learning from them and watching them and being in those environments, like I feel extremely grateful to have experienced those things. As ugly as some of those things were, um, they gave me a different perspective about life that uh, that's important. So that's that's not a good... <laughs> It's kind of a summarizing of, of that, but that's really what the takeaway was. I mean, it was the experience um, that working with uh, top-notch people gives you in difficult environments. I think that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is perfect, actually. <laughs> so going back to... I got us off track a little bit. That's okay. Um, I, I kind of guided this too. Cause I, you were like, what about this? And well, I, just I just went, I have so many <laughs> questions for you. I yeah. was like, I was writing them down earlier. And I was just like, if I keep writing, it's just going to be like, yeah. it's not good. <laughs> um, anyways. So going back to life story wise, you were just finishing up, um, becoming, becoming a green beret. And yep. So what happens next? Uh, so, um, got to 3rd Special Forces Group in 2006, started off initially on a mountaineering detachment in Charlie Company, 2nd Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group, ODA 366, where is, that's where I first met Mike. So he was, uh, I had showed up to the company, they were still in Afghanistan. So Mike's actually told this story about, uh, it's a mission called Operation Red Wings. Um, Marcus Luttrell, you know, there was a movie made about it. Um, uh, he was a Navy SEAL. Uh, their recon team, um, uh, Mike, I believe it was Mike Murphy, one of the Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, just a big, big battle in Afghanistan. So my team was actually on uh, Quick Reaction Force or QRF. Um, essentially, they called everybody in country because these, you know, there were helicopters that were shot down. I mean, it was a giant mess. Um, and uh, my team, which unbeknownst to me, this was happening while I was sitting at Fort Bragg. I had just reported to third special forces group and I went to the company and I met what they call the rear D or the rear, the rear detachment. And it's a skeleton crew of guys that are back home running the company while the rest of the company is forward. You know, they could have, it could have been guys with family issues or, you know, um, or they had to come back for a school or whatever it ends up being. But, um, so I get there and I show up with like, I showed up and then several other guys showed up and we were brand new out of the Q course, the quali- the SF qualification course. We had just graduated. And so we were all like, send us over, you know, like we want to go link up with our teams. And so the, at the time the company Sergeant major, um, sent an email back and said, no, we're getting ready to redeploy. We don't want, th- we don't want to send those guys over. It doesn't make any sense. Just hang tight. We'll be back in a couple weeks We'll assign them to detachments, and then you know the rest uh, is history, essentially. But uh, but that was the first team that I went to. So I met Mike. He was one of the weapon sergeants on the team. I went down as a weapon sergeant. Those guys were actually getting ready to transition to another uh, team, where Mike and I would serve later on in our, in both of our careers. And so I ended up going to that team. I was a it, we had a special emphasis on mountaineering uh, rescue. Um, for like downed aircraft and all this other stuff. And so I, I basically showed up to SF and started going to like mountaineering schools, like right when I got there. So I went and lived in Colorado for, let's see, almost 90 days where they put me through, uh, it was called the United States Army 
Special Operations Command Mountaineering Course at the time, and it was co-located with 10th Special Forces Group in Fort Carson, Colorado. And so I went through that course, and I was like, I'm getting paid to come live in Colorado <laughs> and climb and like learn this skill set. And I mean, it was amazing, you know. And the final exercise was 10 days in Alaska uh, outside of Fairbanks, where we learned how to live on a glacier, do crevasse rescue. I mean, it was... Are you kidding? No, yeah, it was... <laughs> and I'm wow. like, I, I'll never forget it. I had, you know, I had all my gear on and we're all roped up and I'm like, you know, uh, doing a movement across a glacier and I'm thinking to myself, like we stopped and I just took it all in and I was like, this is rad. Like I am getting paid to do this. Um, so that's, that's how I started off. So I was on a, you know, a regular detachment, uh, with a mountaineering emphasis, did a lot of that training, um, did a rotation to Afghanistan on that team. Uh, a lot of good, hard fighting. We were down South, um, and, uh, spent seven months at a fire base, you know, at 8,000 feet, um, in Zabul province, which is kind of, it's still considered Southern Afghanistan, but it's like Northeast. So, I mean, we shared, it was, it was my ODA, which I think there were 13 of us at the time. We were plussed up by one. Uh, we had like 20 Afghan, uh, guys that we had picked to be like our little commando force. And then there was an, an Afghan national army, uh, like infantry battalion that was co-located with us with, uh, another American element called, uh, at the time they were called ETTs, which are embedded tactical trainers. And so, uh, we spent seven months there, uh, lots of IEDs, lots of firefights, killed lots of bad guys. It was a productive deployment. Um, and, uh, yeah, came back from that and then, um, was actually talking to Mike and two of my other teammates, uh, would end up transitioning before me over to a unit called the commanders in extremis force, which was a unit inside of, uh, SF that is basically a reinforced company that does direct action, hostage rescue, special reconnaissance, some pretty specific job sets. And so I had to go to some special schooling before I could go, um, you know, be on a team there. One of those was, uh, it's called Safartech. Um, and it was like our, uh, our assaulter school, if, if for lack of better terms, and to describe that to your listeners, um, it was basically close quarters, combat marksmanship, uh, breaching with explosives, ballistic breaching with shotguns, just a, a bunch of stuff basically on how to become very proficient at urban warfare and doing very surgical type raids and strikes and um, things like that. And then I also had to go to what was called, it used to be called the Special Operations Target Interdiction Course, which was our, basically our sniper course. And so um, typically when guys go over to that unit, they start off on the what we call the assault side. Because I had, I already had a reconnaissance background, they brought me directly over to the sniper side. And that's when I ended up working with Mike again, because he started off on the assault side and then transitioned over to the sniper side. And that's where I ended up going back and working with him again. So we were snipers together on that team. And did you guys, did you guys become friends when you were initially on a team together or did you become friends at this point? Yeah, it was not really. No, no, no. Yeah. I think we, um, well, we definitely had a lot of things in common. We were both Ranger qualified, like, you know, Mike was a really high speed dude, super motivated. And I was always super motivated. Our personalities, uh, were similar in the sense of we were really hungry and really driven, uh, green berets. 
And so we were always looking for, you know, the next thing to do and, you know, and, uh, and to continue to operate at higher levels. And so, um, so I think we hit it off initially, we were on that team uh, only for a couple months and then we would end up spending almost a year together on the other team. And then he would end up moving on to even more specialized places in the military. And, um, I actually stayed, uh, for, um, a while as a sniper. And then I went to go be a sniper instructor. And then I actually went back to the SIF, uh, where that's where I retired out of. I was, um, my last trip was 2014 to Baghdad. And some of, some of the people listening may remember when ISIS swept into Mosul, declared they had a caliphate, all these different things. I was actually in another country in the Middle East and because of the nature of what we did in, in the unit that I was serving in, we actually launched as a crisis reaction element um, to, the, to the ISIS guys going into Mosul. So it was actually, an, uh, I thought it was going to be really cool, a cool deployment, and it ended up being a relatively uneventful one because of, um, you know, politics and a lot of things that, uh, that persuade um, what happens on the ground or, or basically dictate what happens on the ground. And so... That last deployment was relatively uneventful, other than flying around at night, you know, with 160th and <laughs> occasionally getting shot at and stuff like that. But it was, um, but it wasn't, uneventful. it wasn't anything, you know, good in my, the way I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, equate a combat deployment to being good. So, um, anyways, yeah, but that was my last one. And then, um, yeah, so. So all of, Everything that you've seen, all of the battle that you've been in, all of the being shot at and being blown up, it, like, am I hearing this correctly? It did the opposite of scare you. You were just like, I, I, I want to continue doing this. Um, so it's not, so I don't, I don't, I don't want to like portray myself as like some kind of, uh, like, you know, war chaser. No. Yeah, Yeah. Not, nothing like that. So is it scary? Yeah, it absolutely is. Like, uh, you know being in those kind of environments can be super stressful. And, you know, the thing that I always liked about all of it was you fell back on your training and the, the more elite units that you served in, the better training that you got, the better guys you were around. And so it just naturally kind of, uh, you know, you just naturally did your thing. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that's really it. And then for me, it was never about like, I love the job. I love the team too. So it was about being in that environment is just was a really unique place to operate. And so, um, I never wanted to leave that, you know, nobody ever wants to leave a team because when you leave the team, like, you know, that you're going to administrative job or you're doing something that is not what you all had signed up to do. So it's almost like it's, it's like a kick in the gut when you leave, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. I guess I'm just, I'm kind of blown away because I mean, everybody struggles with different things and everybody's psyches are differently Mm -hmm. and all of that, but it's, it's part of, it's a big part of why I asked you to be here today because your, you and your mindset and everything is something I really admire because being able to go through things like that Mm -hmm. and continue to do those things for the wonderful reasoning that you have and be able to stay sane through it all (laughs) is it's, it's incredible. Like bottom line, there's no other way to phrase that. It just is. And well, I appreciate that. I I think the expectation is in the the community of men that I came out of in special operations is, you know, it was a high pressure, high performance environment. And the expectation is, is that 
you're a professional and that you serve in that capacity there. Um, I, you know, I made plenty of mistakes and, and different things. So I, I don't want to portray that. I've learned a lot through my failures, um, you know, as a professional soldier, as a husband, father, like just life in general, right? Like we, we get beat down and you got to get back up. But one thing I think if you asked anybody I ever served with, um, they would tell you that I'm probably one of the most upbeat, optimistic people that they've ever been around. (laughs) Even like we would be in shitty situations and, uh, you know, I'm over there laughing and giggling and smiling. And, uh, I kind of like to be that guy. And so, um, it's funny too. Cause like Mike, you know, we've known each other for so long. Like when I'm off, like he can tell right away, like, Hey, what's going on, you know? And so that's a good part of our relationship that we share. Um, and we know that from being on the teams, you know, and, and being, just so integrated with other with other dudes that like you just know everything about each other so you can tell right away when something's off so that's a that's a good thing I think oh yeah I was uh I haven't released this interview yet but it was with um oh wait no I have Uh, um, Podcast hosting gets uh, hectic. Something like (laughs) that. I don't know. I'm 26. I don't feel like that's supposed to be happening yet. (laughs) Um, Anyways, no, I uh, I interviewed my friend James, and he said something something along similar lines to you that, like, the closest relationships he's had Mm -hmm. are with his teammates because it's just the things you've been through. Right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you end up spending more time on the team than you do at home, which, you know, presents a whole nother reintegration process and uh, not a set of problems. I just they're challenges for sure. And it's it's learning how to live around your own family again, which is really difficult. You know, I and I think, uh, you know, there's a high divorce rate in special operations in general. Um, and you know, I mean, you fall in love with the job. I mean, you really do. And it's so demanding on time, you know, cause it's not, it's different than other jobs in the sense of like, it's a life and death end game, you know? And so you realize that from the get go and the culture itself breeds this elite performance culture that require, it demands all of your attention. So it's actually really difficult. You know, I've had people reach out to me and they're like, how did you do it? How are you still married? My wife's really patient one. Um, and I give her a ton of credit for that because it wasn't me, you know, it was, I mean, I was like anything I could jump on mission wise. I was that guy, you know, especially when I got done instructing, I felt like I had taken two years teaching and I was like, all my peers were still deploying. Some of them, some of them were teaching with me and we used to, you know, be disgruntled a little bit together. Um, but when I got back, I was really hungry to get back and be relevant again and understand what was going on in the job. And, and so, you know, I was constantly gone. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that reintegration process with your family presents a whole, set of challenges, um, that I don't think people realize how difficult that is. Did you ever, did you ever feel like you didn't fit when you got back home? Um, I think, uh, it wasn't that I didn't fit. Like I love my kids. I love my wife, uh, very much. Um, but it was, uh, I didn't feel as close. 
Um, and I didn't understand some of the, you know, some of the things that that had gone on. And then I'm such a strong personality that I would step back in and try and reinvent the wheel for a lack of better terms with my wife. And she's like, what are you doing? (laughs) So, you know, I think uh, a lot of lessons learned there, a lot of takeaways. And um, I don't think I've probably apologized enough to my wife about how I was, um, you know, with with that reintegration process, because I mean, that's one thing I want to bring a little bit of attention to since, since we're talking about it is how hard military spouses, both men and women work to provide, you know, a regular home life for your, for their children. Um, while that, that service members deployed and, um, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about it, but it is difficult, you know? And so, um, they're kind of the unsung heroes, uh, of, what I call the backside support where they're taking care of finances and they're taking care of your children and they're doing all of these things. And, you know, we, we, uh, we talk about, you know, our special operations guys and all the things that they're doing. Well, the, in my mind, the real heroes are, you know, their families and, and everything that they endure, um, to allow that service member or that, that guy or gal in special operations to go out and be the tip of the spear. So it's, it's a big deal too. You said that you were, that there were a number of takeaways and you learned a ton from, from being gone and from like getting back into your family and all of that. What, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to people who, who are dealing with that right now? Um, just be patient with one another. Um, like I know my personality and I, I am a very strong willed individual. And so I would, I would say to whoever that person is, that's listening right now, be patient, take a deep breath and give your spouse or significant other a little bit of room. Like they, you guys have been a, a part. Um, and so learning how to be reintegrated together takes time and patience on both sides. And I feel like, um, you know, being the leader in that aspect may encourage the other spouse or, you know, significant other partner, whatever you call each other, um, to, uh, you know, maybe to, to follow your example. Um, cause I wasn't good at that. So I, <laughs> like I said, I learned a lot about the mistakes that I made and fortunately my wife is patient. So, um, yeah, that's, that's probably one of the biggest takeaways is be patient with each other and remember that you love each other. What about with your kids? How how was that? How was being gone? How was being back? Um, you know, I it's funny. I've talked to other other uh, guys about this that I served with, and I was always real compartmentalized with that information. So um, even when I deployed, like I didn't. It was only maybe into some of my last deployments I actually brought my kids to Green Ramp where I deployed from um, because I didn't want it to be this big theatrical thing that affected them negatively. So that was my way, my way and my family's way of doing it. And I always told my wife, I don't want to see, I don't want them to see me leave. Um, and we did, as they got older, they wanted to come say goodbye. Like the girls, um, you know, they got a little bit more say they're like, I want to see you leave. I want to give you a hug and say goodbye. And so we did that. I think maybe my last one or two, um, that I did while I was, uh, you know, before I, I retired and I didn't like it, you know, it was emotional for me. Um, and I want, you know, I was very mission focused and I wanted to stay that way, you know, and I, I knew that it's in a weird way when you're thinking about home, it's a potential liability. You need to be focused on what you're doing. 
um, because that's what's important at that time. And, you know, it's not just your life on the line, it's your teammates. And so that's made it an even higher priority. You know, the expectation was that you're taking care of the guys to your left and right because they had families too. And, you know, it was almost a thing where you were like, I'd rather get it than one of my teammates and not come home, you know, because you love and care about each other that much. And so, you know, again, back to the family thing for me with deploying, I just didn't want, I kept things compartmentalized. So now as I'm out, you know, it's funny because I talk to my kids now, they're 16 and 12, the ones that are still in the house. And they, um, my, even my older ones now on Memorial day and some certain holidays, veterans day, they're like, I didn't understand the totality and, uh, and what you were doing and, and the level that you did it at. And so they've been really kind and in coming back and saying like, I love you. Like, I can't believe you were off doing that. And I didn't even know, you know, because, um, you kept us shielded from that and, you know, different families do different things. That's the way that, um, I chose to do it. Um, and it's funny now cause my younger ones, they just look at pictures and stuff that I have and, um, you know, they see like, uh, some medals and things like that. And they read some of the citations and they look at some of that stuff and they're like, wow, like I had no, and I'm like, well, yeah, you guys were babies, you know? So, um, I, I don't know if that I, I answered that, but that's kind of no, how that was I, perfect. yeah, that's how, that's how we did it. So, so one of the questions I, I always try to ask is if there if there was one trait that you could instill in everybody, what would it be? Uh, but I kind of want to change that for you because, <laughs> because you have one. kids. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, yeah. how have you how has everything you've experienced kind of affected how you've parented and what what have you tried to instill in them? Um, well, first off, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've said that over and over in this podcast. I'm pretty humble that way. I'm not embarrassed to talk about them because I've learned from every single one. Um, and you're human. If you didn't make yeah, mistakes, right. yeah. like this, that's one awesome. thing I want to emphasize over and over again, because sometimes Mike and I both get put on a pedestal and I actually, it's an uncomfortable place for me to be because I don't want people to think that, you know, that, um, that we're not human. And I want people to understand that we are human and that we have the same struggles and have dealt with, you know, the same, some of the same things. Right. And, uh, and I want to connect with people that way and then have them understand my mindset now to hopefully potentially help somebody out of a, a bad situation and give them some type of a, you know, a life lesson learned or empowerment or something to make themselves better. I like that. That's super motivating to me. Um, but if it, if we were going to go back and pick one thing, basically the question that you asked, even as a parent now, it would be, um, it's a discipline. I talk about it all the time and people are always like, well, how do I get motivated? And I'm like, well, I get motivated by listening to some music and, uh, you know, maybe it's a thought, maybe it's something, maybe it's something I read from somebody else, whatever. Right. But it's temporary. Um, and so if you had to ask me, one of the most important things is instilling some kind of discipline in your life. And, and typically that looks like, you know, with working out, um, for me, that's a huge stress reliever. And I actually have felt like crap lately because, uh, as I get older and my injuries from getting hurt in the military and all that kind of stuff had to modify a lot of the things that I do, even at the gym, cause I just physically am not as capable as I used to be in my twenties, right? It's just getting older. It's, it's life. 
Um, but I, but I still do, but I've been on the road a bunch the last couple of weeks. And so kind of some of my mental therapy is going in and lifting weights, listening to my jams, you know, um, pushing steel, doing that because it, it, it's a healthy release for me, um, just to go in, you know, for an hour, hour and a half and, and get kind of clear my mind and, you know, do some, some physical things. And then I've noticed that over a long career in the military, um, that, that kind of sets the tone for the day. Um, you know, doing something physical in the morning, kind of getting your blood flow moving and it starts to, you know, produce my creativity, um, things that I think about, like things I got to do, you know, all that. Right. So the, the discipline over the day, uh, looks like me getting up in the morning, working out, um, and then going in and then working all day with Mike, you know, whether it's on the road or, uh, for doing a podcast, whatever we're doing, um, that's what it looks like. And it looks like that over a long period of time, like the majority of my adult life up to this point, um, whether it was in the military or doing stuff as, you know, the second in charge or whatever you want to call me of field craft and helping try to grow this company. It's a long life of discipline. And so, you know, that's one thing I like being uh, a small business leader and entrepreneur is it's all on us. Like if we don't uh, grind, um, then we don't, you know, we don't get paid. We don't, you know, we can't employ other people. We can't grow this business and do those things. And so I've, I've been talking about this a little bit lately, but kind of uh, veteran entrepreneurship, like finding that place transitionally that motivates you. Um, you'll never be more motivated than when you have to make a living, you know, with your own business, because it either fails or it succeeds based off of what you do. So you want to talk about, you know, I think Jocko, uh, who's uh, he was a Navy SEAL officer. Uh, maybe some people listening will know who that is. He's a pretty popular guy. I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Willinick. So Jocko Willinick. Uh, and um, he talks about he wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. And so you talk about extreme ownership, you know, having a business is extreme ownership. And so um, I connect a lot of those things, but, you know, I learned about a lot of those things in the military and, and how to apply them just a little bit of tweaking as a civilian. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But, but those principles all still apply. Absolutely. And so much of it too, I feel like it's, and I've, I mean, like we've been talking about, about being human, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've done this as well. It's like, well, how do I get motivated? And I don't want to go to the gym and I don't want to <laughs> do that. And then eventually, you know, the whole embrace the suck thing. You embrace the suck enough times consistently that right. that then the discipline is there and you don't need as much of the motivation, if yeah. if you will, because it's just like, oh, this is just the thing I do, actually. Like, right. it's not, I don't even really Habitually, it. it's what you do. And then when habitually you don't do it, mm-hmm. you actually are like, ugh, I don't like this. Like, exactly. I need to get to the gym because this is what I do. And mm-hmm. um, we've talked about a lot of that, like uh, healthy habits is what we call them. And, um, and habitually, you know, what you do is who you are, you know. Um, so, you know, habitually who you surround yourself with, you know, I mean, there's just a ton of life things there that, that habits kind of dictate, uh, who we become, who we are. And if there's unhealthy ones in the mix, then obviously that can be detrimental. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So what's, what's next for you? I mean, what's like, <laughs> you guys have so much going on right now we and do. It's, yeah. it's kind of incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, yeah, the company is multifaceted. Um, we, 
we do training, we have products, we are working on new products, we have a podcast, we've got some things happening uh, with TV. I can't get super specific about it, but that's going to drop soon. Um, in August, I'm still waiting on a date and a time, um, but we're excited about that. Um, geez, what else are we doing? Uh, we're, you know, the mobility side with vehicles and training and companies and equipment and products. And, um, we're constantly doing, you know, uh, as much as we can. Um, so we're going to continue to do that. Uh, Mike jokingly, uh, not jokingly, he's pretty serious about it, but we handled a lot of different things. We were expected to do a lot of different things in the military, especially in special operations. You know, we were snipers, we were free fall guys. We had to do reconnaissance. We had to be good at communications. So it was a, it was a pretty robust job description. And so even as entrepreneurs and business guys, you know, we look at that and we've taken that and kind of applied it to okay, well, we just don't want to be have a single revenue stream. We want to have several. So if one doesn't do well, like we can still, you know, pay the bills and, you know, pay our employees and, um, and keep the lights on and stuff like that. So uh, we have, you know, good friends that are entrepreneurs and, you know, more successful than us. And it's like, you know, the old adage of who you surround yourself with and learning and so we've done a good job, I think, of uh, of doing that and, and picking other people's brains and constantly learning and reading and, you know, trying to figure it out. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, what's next? I don't know. It could be epic. <laughs> I feel like it's already been epic. Yeah, it just, it's like, been. It's getting better. And I mean, better. yeah, I, we're super busy all the time. And I, you know, I laugh because I've seen some people that are like, you know, if you use that as an excuse to, you know, uh, to not talk to people or whatever. And it's like, I get tons of emails and phone calls every day and text messages. I interact with people on social media. So like all these different things on top of responsibilities in the company. And so I have to be really careful because of our backgrounds about making sure that I'm giving enough time to my family and my kids and, you know, um, just making sure I'm balancing my time right. Because that, I have a tendency to go the other way, which is like complete full on like work, 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 work every day, every hour of the day. Um, so yeah, it's, which is, I mean, it's a whole different world now because it's not like you're deployed and that's okay to do. Now right, it's yeah. like you're, you're juggling, you have all of it. All exactly. Of it now. Yeah. yeah. Which it can be a double edged sword with our mm-hmm. backgrounds. Cause we're so hungry to be successful and we don't like to fail and, um, and, you know, we want to succeed and we're very mission focused. And so some of those things can be a double edged sword in the sense of like, you can't forget about, you know, your family and your kids and all that stuff. So yeah, I have to remind myself that all the time. <laughs> so I have, I have one more question for you. Okay. Um, and I'm really curious and it's a, <laughs> it's a question that probably everybody asks in interviews. But you've had so many things in your life that that you can be incredibly proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a particular... I'm curious to know what you're most proud of, what you feel like your greatest accomplishment is thus far. Uh, greatest accomplishment, my kids. <laughs> um, I love them very much, and they're hugely impactful in my life. Um, I mean, everything else is cool. Don't get me wrong. You know what I mean? I uh, had a lot of really neat opportunities and pretty blessed uh, to be able to be involved with Fieldcraft. And I, you know, 
take it pretty seriously, really seriously. Um, but definitely my children, I mean, you know, you get an opportunity to do a lot of things in life, but like shaping and molding another human being, hopefully positively. Um, I'm still learning to do that too. Like I said, I can be a real hard ass. Uh, my daughters keep me humble though. And they constantly (laughs) remind me that I'm just a dude, uh, playing a dude. No. Um, but no, my, my kids. So I've got, my oldest is Alexis, my stepdaughter, she's 23. My son, Christian is 18. Um, my, uh, my daughter after, uh, my son, Christian is Cameron. She's 16. And then Emma's 12. So, uh, my youngest daughter is 12 and they're all very important to me and I love them very much. And they are definitely, um, without a doubt, the best accomplishment that I've, uh, ever been a part of. That's really wonderful. Well, I I honestly can't thank you enough for doing this. Yeah, um, thanks. I appreciate you having me on. I I hope that uh, people get a little bit of a insight into me and Mike and I joke a lot and Philcraft. Like we were talking about our podcast, <laughs> and you were like, it's you know super entertaining. You guys make me laugh. Um, but there is a serious side to me, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm grateful that you had me on. Um, and I'm, I think it's cool what you're doing. Like I asked you why you're doing these and you want to tell people's story. And this is, you know, granted, this is a small part of my story, but these are definitely things that have influenced me in my life and, uh, made me who I am today. So thank you for having me. <laughs>